and we are back, and I'm excited to be back, because we're not just back. We're back with another deep dive interview. It's been too long. I've, I've heard several complaints and requests. Zach, the show is good, but where are the deep dives? We've got several on deck coming up over the next couple weeks, but we're going to kick it off in style. Uh, a guy... I don't know if I can really call him a guy, but he is joining us, and I've been wanting to have this interview for quite a while. And uh, again, I, I don't really know how to introduce him. Maybe it's maybe it's a Mister Doomberg, but he is a chicken. Now, if you're just listening for the first time, this will all make sense. But without further ado, want to welcome Doomberg to the podcast. And like I said, is it is it a Mister Doomberg? Would that be would that be an appropriate introduction? Zach, it's uh, great to be on your show. Long time coming, as we were chatting before we started recording. But uh, in the uh, in the sort of the glorious history of content creators like Cher and Prince, you can just call me Doomberg. <laughs> All right. All right. The, the green chicken. And it, he's not just your average day green chicken. Um, you have recently announced. Now, I'm jumping in front of it because you and I have not had that yet had this conversation ourselves. But you're you're launching a new podcast with none other than Grant Williams, who's a friend of the show, has been on several times. But kind of give us the evolution. You guys kind of popped out of nowhere. All of a sudden, I started reading the, uh, some of the content, and I was like, this is fantastic. Great research, great insight. Um, and I've been shocked at how quick you guys have ramped. Kind of give me the story. Give me the inspiration. Kind of give me the background and, and, and kind of what led us to today and, and you know what led us to this conversation. Happy to, Zach. And uh, like many small business owners, we were rocked by COVID. Um, in real life, we run a, a bespoke consulting firm, and we had a very good book of business, mostly um, assisting uh, C-suite executives and publicly traded companies and some wealthy family offices. And then COVID hit uh, in the spring of 2022, and, and literally overnight, uh, we lost 85% of our business. And, you know, um, many, many small business owners went through the same. Um, but for our very small team um, who come from a, a background of heavy industry and commodities and finance, um, it was a real shock and we had to, to decide what we were going to do. And so like many entrepreneurs slash business owners, we re reinvented ourselves a little bit and, and we decided to develop a product that, that catered to content creators and, and particularly content creators that served Wall Street, sold newsletters, podcasts, et cetera, to Wall Street. And uh, we had a lot of fun doing that. We ended up um, meeting lots of great people and restoring our entire book of business by the end of 2020, uh, 2020 doing that. And then over time, you know, we, through the encouragement of some very good friends like Grant Williams, who you mentioned, and, and you, you and I have chatted offline and our, our mutual friend, Dimitri Kofinas and others had encouraged us, you know, Hey, you, you, you guys are pretty good at this. Uh, you clearly know how to do the business side of it very well. So why don't, why don't you think about launching something on your own? And so nine months ago, we launched uh, doomberg.substack.com, which is the primary uh, outlet for our our content. We write um, eight to ten articles a month on energy, finance, uh, geopolitics, macroeconomics. Uh, it's truly the work of our lives. We've had a blast doing it. Uh, and as you've mentioned, we've had success well beyond our wildest dreams when we started. Uh, we do think that a key, obviously, we, we take deep pride in the product. Um, we think that the the publications are great. Uh, otherwise, we wouldn't put them out. But really, we we think the differentiator for us is just sort of the the discipline around running it as a business and uh, treating it as a profession and helping other content creators by sharing our tips and tricks and, and learning from them as well in a sort of rising tide raises all boats type uh, philosophy. And, and it's been a real blast. Uh, we're, we're 
closing in on 30,000 email subscribers on Substack. We're also very active on Twitter. Um, at Doomberg T is our Twitter handle. I'm almost 40,000 followers on Twitter, all in a period of nine months. So we're very excited by it. It's it's a real blast. And, um, you know, opportunities like this to talk about Doomberg with your audience are a key part of, of our growth strategy. And so we're, we're really forever indebted to you for having us on. Oh, well, you know, my pleasure in, in you know, you and I have had this conversation offline, but, but um, you know, any time that we can, you know, and I think this is true of, of the whole network, at least, you know, the, all the podcast guys that we're probably both, you know, like you mentioned, a bunch that we, that we are mutual friends that we both know. Um, and, and there's just kind of that cooperative effort because, you know, the, I think we can all agree the mainstream media is completely broken. Yes. Um, and there is really nowhere to get that deep content. And I think that that brokenness in the mainstream media is reflected all over our culture. I think it's reflected in the markets. Um, it, so if we're looking at Doomberg and you're talking to the people out there, I, you know, I know why I love it. I love reading the content. Would you describe your guy, you know, and I, I could describe it, but it'd be better to get sure. it from chicken's beak. Uh, sure. <laughs> uh, couldn't help myself there. Uh, w- would you guys describe yourself as research content or economic edi- ed- editorial work, or how how do you guys describe it? Uh, yes. Uh, so no, we um, <laughs> so we, we in our real life in our consulting business we sort of operated as a think tank. Um, our clients hired us to think about really complex problems in unique ways, on the hopes that we could reframe potential solutions that their teams internally hadn't conceived of. Uh, we really enjoyed that business. One of the key attributes of our firm, which our clients always um, highlighted in their feedback to us, was our ability to crisply describe complex topics in ways that were accessible. Um, and the core element of what Doomberg does, if you really strip it down to brass tacks, is we're pretty good at describing and teaching non-finance topics to the finance world. So, you know, just the molecular interconnectivity of the economy or explaining how, um, you know, various supply chains interact in ways that, that we've been able to make some pretty prescient predictions about how the energy crisis was going to play out and, and which supply chains would be more impacted. And so, but at its core, we, we write about whatever is interesting to us. Um, we really love doing it. It's, it, I've always wanted to be a, a writer um, and, and our team, you know, that, that, that does the Doomberg project. We all sort of have our own roles to play. It's very hand in glove. It's a very tight team. Uh, we love doing it and it's just a lot of fun. And so we'll, we, we'll write about, um, you know, the monopolization of the meatpacking industry one week and we'll write about, um, you know, um, pick your favorite energy crisis in Asia or why um, the magnesium market is going to be an inflationary driver in the automotive sector. Uh, we, we see the connections. We, we have good pattern recognition. And our ability to distill complexity into, you know, um, tight morsels of of, of interesting writing uh, that is that is edited in a very tight way uh, is unique. And and we have three brand attributes for Doomberg with each piece. Um, our our brand ambition is to be funny without being silly. It's to be provocative without being polarizing. And there's a, an important difference. And it shall teach without being self indulgent. And if and to the best of our ability. We think every piece we put out hits all those three, and it's been a lot of fun. The feedback has been great. Um, our growth is we're, we're compounding emails and followers and views at 30 to 40% month over month um, for the past five, six, seven months. It's, it's been 
pretty surreal, to be honest with you, but this is truly the work of our lives. This is what we were meant to do. We're actually grateful for the fact that we lost 85% of our business when COVID hit, because um, while that was a great business and we enjoyed it, um, this is much better. And, and our long-term intent is to convert Doomberg into a business, to go behind a paywall, to make it a subscription service. We've been very honest and open with our readers about that fact, and they've supported us along the way. And and we're just going to keep growing um, free uh, for as long as we can. And then eventually we're going to figure out how to convert this into a, a business where we could spend even more time and resources yeah. to make the product even better. Yeah, no, and people don't realize that. Uh, I've actually had conversations with uh, Cuppy uh, uh, on this topic, um, talking about, you know, how he wants to, you know, he wants people to pay for Ketum, his, his newsletter, because mm-hmm. it allows him to hire more analysts. It allows him to do better work, right? Um, the, the other thing, one of the reasons I want to have you on, it's funny you brought this up, uh, is making complex economic and financial topics accessible and, and edible, right? Uh, digestible to the average, to the average person or the layman. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense at all, right? Just somebody that doesn't do this for a living. And that is why I like it. And I like it because, um, people say this, I get so tired in this business, especially of listening to these quote unquote pros drone on and on and say all the right vernacular and not say anything at all. And they're all regurgitating the same line. And truthfully, you can tell that their depth of knowledge is very shallow and they've got no clue what they're talking about. And unfortunately, somehow those people get the microphone where, you know, I look at, I want to hear analysis of a business from a guy that's consulted on a bunch of them, right? It's, it's an insight that you just don't get if you've worked on Wall Street as an analyst. Um, and, and, you know, I, we were, I was shocked. I don't track this stuff, but I was shocked the other day to find out that we're approaching a million downloads on wow. our podcast. Congratulations. Well, th- yeah, thank you. And, 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 but I think it's because of that same thing, right? We're not sitting there talking and, you know, the, the fancy vernacular of the industry, but we're breaking down these concept topics. And there's a real hunger for that. Because people want to know, but they don't want to listen to these self-indulgent, you know, guys get up there and, and uh, you know, drone on and on about this and that and say the same thing and never say anything. And so I, I, you, I think you guys are seeing the, you know, you guys are the proof of that, right? Um, yeah. I think the, the success that we've had is the proof of that. People want, people want the info. And, and it's funny that we're taking this turn right here because I, I, I've read some of the stuff that you guys have put out. I, you know, I think that we're pretty much simpatico on the way we view the world. And yet, I, I, and I don't want to make too much out of a day, but here we are sitting on a day where, you, you know, you got CPI running hot. You got a really strong jobs report. You have rates surging, right? Surging. Mm-hmm. Oil mm-hmm. prices surging. I just looked. Oil is up two and a half, been bouncing around two and a half to three percent. With rates surging, tech is outperforming oil stocks. And, and, and I, I don't want to make too much of that. Like, it's one day. But one of the things I'm sitting there looking at, reading your guys' work, just, just looking at the market, right? Not even in a biased way. Just, just looking at the economic reports. I think that we've got a freight train coming at us. Mm-hmm. And everybody's partying like nothing's changed. What, what, kind of give me your assessment of how you guys are seeing things. Uh, about the market in general and how you're reading this environment. And then we can dig into some of the more particulars, right, and, and some of the more nuanced parts of that. But just the market in general, how do you guys see this? And don't you, do you think, do you agree with me that today is kind of a perfect example of how detached this market currently is? 
Yeah, yes. And so I think um, it's probably important to frame our backgrounds. Um, we come from industry with decades of experience on the inside of how big companies work, especially in the commodity sector. And there's so few people that have that experience that are willing to be content creators that give that side and that angle of the story to Wall Street investors and uh, high net worth individuals alike, which is kind of our target audience, if we're being honest about you know who reads Doomberg. Um, and so from the beginning of Doomberg, we, we've been giving that angle in the sense that we have scores of contacts that are senior executives at companies you would know, and, and they've been ringing the bell on inflation, um, inability to get uh, new energy supply online in a timely way because of regulatory issues and red tape in the U.S., um, massive shortage of qualified labor to do the work that's needed. And so um, as we've observed this inflation-deflation debate, over the, the nine months we've been writing Duberg, we've been obviously very severely in the inflation camp and and our energy pieces are our most popular because that's sort of right in our wheelhouse of expertise. Uh, the writing has been on the wall that um, supply chains are disrupted, uh, labor is in short supply, inflation is going to be real, transitory is a joke. Um, the, there's there's the, the what we call them sort of the echoes of, of COVID and the disruption of the economy and whether or not um, you thought that um, the lockdowns were good policy, the, the consequences of them are just undeniable that the supply chains are wrecked. Um, and, and we see that today. And, and we heard it early on from our sources and have been writing from that angle. Um, now, luckily, you know, as we've said several times, we, we don't participate much in the stock market. We certainly observe it. Um, we, we can't bring ourselves to invest in things that we don't believe are sort of in the standard you know, value investor framework, uh, capable of, of uh, more than producing uh, cash flows paid back to shareholders the, than what we put in. And we, we're never, we've never been comfortable in a greater fool's trade. Um, so we, we you know, earn in fiat, we, we um, save by buying real assets, and we invest in, in private businesses where we can affect the outcome. But per your question about the stock market, I mean, we... we we, we, we can't begin to claim that we have any idea what drives some of the valuations and some of the, the mania that we see, although there's one interpretation, which we did write about quite early um, in a piece called Every Doge Has Its Day. You know, if, if you read the sort of early days of the hyperinflationary uh, event that occurred in Germany after World War I, um, you could sort of reinterpret a lot of the behavior of the people in that society as willing to trade their Deutschmarks for just about anything even uh, even JPEGs on the blockchain. Um, and, and so one of the signs that we look for is, is if, but trying to sort of interpret this behavior um, is, is potentially, you know, an early sign of, of collapsing confidence in, in fiat currencies in general and, and maybe even the U.S. dollar in particular. We get a lot of heat from macroeconomists for even alluding to that because they think it, it sort of disqualifies us from having an opinion on it. But um, we, we do look for those signs. And, and one thing we've said in our writing and, and on other podcasts is this is the first inflationary pulse that has occurred during a time of hyper interconnectivity on social media where the algorithms, we know for a fact that the algorithms can shape perceptions. And inflation is nothing else if not driven by um, expectations of inflations. Yeah. And those expectations can be manipulated and in many instances can be manipulated by countries that don't like us. So TikTok China, for example, um, who gets to decide what goes viral on TikTok? Uh, so with the, the picture of the first $20 Big Mac going viral on TikTok is not something that we believe the Federal Reserve has the, the, the faintest idea about or, 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 or is even remotely equipped to understand, let alone handle it. And I, we have argued 
um, that because this is the first inflationary pulse that has occurred during a time of, you know, uh, of hyperconnectivity on social media, that the path from elevated to hyper is perhaps a lot shorter than people can conceive. Yeah, no, um, it's really interesting that you said that because I don't, it's not that I know everything. I certainly don't. I've just spent a lot of time over the last, really since the financial crisis, really, I've learned and unlearned a lot of things about monetary policy during that period of time. And I did not connect that. You're 100% right. Knowing the, knowing the history of the, of the, of the uh, Weimar Republic, they, you're right. They'd trade it for anything. If there was Dogecoin around, it probably would have gone to the moon, right? It probably mm-hmm. would have had rocket mm-hmm. ships. That is really fascinating. Um, the, one of the interesting things about this with me is, is, you know, we've been saying it for years. And, and, and you know, I'm sure you guys have too. But it, it's amazing to watch these things that have such a, run, run, you know, such a long runway start developing and start unfolding. And I think the issue you've got, and I think that this is something people don't really get, is that I think it will be, in my opinion, it is going to be the Fed that drives inflation. And I don't think they're going to have a choice because we'd been long saying that we believe the Fed was painting themselves into a corner. I think they're in that corner right now, and they've got to pick inflation or the stock market. You can't have both, right? Mm. And, and um, it's going to be fascinating to watch how they balance this because I think that we're I, – I think the people out there that think that they have seen the full gamut of, of uh, monetary gymnastics, I would tell them to buckle up. I think, I think we're just getting rolling. What, what, what do you say to that, and, and do you agree with me that the Fed has, pointed, has painted themselves into a corner? And if not, give me how, kind of give me the role that you see them playing <clears throat> as going forward. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's sort of uh, common knowledge now that the Fed has painted into a corner. You know, the last time inflation, you know, the CPI was printing 7-plus percent. I believe interest rates were north of 11 percent, and, <laughs> and – um, now we have this huge debt overhang, and and um, I have many good friends who have the opposite opinion, which is essentially that uh, this inflationary burst will do nothing but trigger a deflationary collapse in the economy. Uh, per per your point, like you can either have inflation or you can handle inflation, or you or you could crush the stock market. Um, you know, we're shaped by our experiences, and I I came into the investing universe, you know, as I was uh, working my way through corporate America uh, at the literally at the beginning of the of the financial crisis. And um, I remember that the stock market can go down 70, 80 percent, um, you know, um, and, and stocks can go away overnight. And, and I think that we the marginal investor today, driven by the gamification and uh, the crypto boom, um, has, has not yet lived through such an experience. And uh, one of the things I'm genuinely concerned about is um, sort of retail investor margin and, and how many people are investing on margin. You know, I, I, the, the, the reason that we don't participate in the stock market is because we don't trust it. Um, there's, there's a vast chasm between price and value. Um, we would much rather own tangible things and invest in companies that are private where our skills and capabilities and networks can tip the scales in our favor and create what we would call sweat equity alpha. Yep. Um, and that's I mean, not for everybody. Not everybody has access to those deals. It's just happened to be part of what we do for a living. And so given that optionality, the, um, you know, full participation in the casino is not something that's attractive to us. Although I will say that we have, obviously, you know, we, like everybody, we enjoy a good, um, a good, 
a good game of craps, uh, and we we have uh, some gambling accounts that we do make some modest bets in just to sort of keep our interest in it. But by and large, I, I do agree. I think the Fed is is severely boxed into a corner. You know, the, these estimates that they're going to hike rates five, six, seven times this year, I think, are crazy. Um, good I luck. Think, uh, yeah, and um, you know, but then again, we're seeing just in the past few days and weeks massive amounts of retail inflows into the market, and so there's still the um, the, the BTFD um, phenomenon out yeah. there, and and uh, it's it's you know it's still not a market I'd feel comfortable shorting. For example, not even the stocks that we think are walking insolvencies. Um, but uh, that's just you know there's a lot of zombie companies out there, and and literally all of these things are just letters on a screen. And if enough people in enough Discord chat rooms gang up and decide that they want to run a stock up, you know, the, it's 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 it, it can be a widowmaker trade if you dare to short something. And so that. that you know that one of our rules is we just don't so yeah. um just it makes life simpler so you can observe the market through a lens that is a bit more calm because the each tick doesn't affect your your net worth in the way that uh, it might if if you were a full participant commenting on the markets yeah no the the um one one of the things that i think is so structurally uh unfair uh, in, and in my opinion, makes no sense is how hard it is for unaccredited investors to, you know, in, in, invest in the types of private companies that you're talking about. Right. That whole accredited investor thing. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, we'll we'll give you a Robin Hood account and let you lever it up 200 percent. But you can't make investments in private companies. Are you kidding me? Um, it, it's 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 dumbfounding to me. Um, and, and, you know, coming from our side of it. Um, you know, for the vast, now we have, we have a private equity, we have a, uh, uh, VC slash private equity fund for our clients, but, but they have to be accredited, right? Unfortunately, we can't open it up to everybody else. Um, mm-hmm. and we're, and we're trying to find ways to get, you know, we have, you know, actual real, uh, real estate fund investments, trying to own real assets outside of public markets with our clients as well. Um, but it, the pricing mechanism, you know, the, the, and look, I'm not trying to say that these stocks should go up because we own them. But watching it is fascinating watching investors tripping over themselves to buy these companies that have zero to negative cash flow uh, and they're trading at 15, 20, 25 times sales. Some of them have already been hit really hard. You know, I look at some of the ones that have been hit hard and I'm like, that's still a really expensive stock, you know, yeah. and their business is in fire, on fire. Um, and, and, but anyway, you look at all these and then you look at people passing up. We've got we've got energy stocks in our portfolio that at these level at at these prices of oil right ninety dollar oil that are throwing off like sixty five percent free cash flow to their market cap and, and and watching people sell that right to go buy this it, it it is it's startling there are times where it makes me sit there and go you know maybe I'm the idiot right maybe you know and and the, what I what I what I keep thinking to myself. And, and I, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. But what I keep thinking to myself when I, when I sit back and look at this scenario is that when, when, when cash, when you get to the point where profit and cash flows do not matter, I think you got to be really close, right? You got to be really close to the, it's max insanity. Would you agree? Yeah, I, I would say there's, um, everybody looks like a genius in retrospect when you buy things that, um, you know, basically substantial discount to book value. Um, I would say that we're beginning to see Berkshire Hathaway outperform the market, um, which one might expect if we're getting close to a turn like this, because one thing they've been is 
pretty consistent about you know you make you make your money when you buy um, because the price that you purchase is the is the most dominant indicator of the potential value in the long term at least as measured against um, you know the, the earning stream uh, we we could never break out of that mindset and um, luckily for us you know we've some would say we've missed all these gains um, we we're doing quite fine in life and um, and we're, 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 as the Bitcoin maxis would, you know, when we write a, a skeptical piece about Bitcoin and they get annoyed with us um, and they scream at us, uh, have fun staying poor, we say, no, we'll just, we're happy to have fun staying reasonably well off. Um, so, you know, the market could draw down 80, 90% from here and, and other than potentially affecting the private marks of some of our investments that we think are great companies that don't really need um, the stock market to do well. It's probably not going to affect our life very much. Um, so it's just one of those things we've decided to do. Not everybody's in that position. You know, to your point about the controversy around accredited investors, it is a very sophisticated market. Um, it does require a certain level of expertise oh, um, yeah. to participate in a way that um, is logical. Because as you know, you know, your price, my terms and preferences, and there's lots of sharks in the private market. And But it is also, of course, if you do know it well and you're comfortable with your skills and your contacts and and your experience uh, and your ability to, to tip the scales in your favor, it is a potentially a substantial source of alpha for the right mindset for the people that have the time to manage it. That's the other thing. You know, we famously don't take scheduled meetings. Um, our firm is um, very much dedicated to zero calendar um, and to having lots of free time to think and to read and to debate and to write and to create and to live a wonderful life of, of creativity and, and fun. Um, and we're totally accessible to all of our clients 24-7, but that doesn't mean that we have to accept scheduled meetings, which we think are the bane of human creativity. And, and so we have lots of time to think about these private investments and to hustle them along and to manage them, whereas if you're sort of working in the corporate world 40, 50, 60 hours a week, um, Zoom call is Zoom call, um, it might be a little bit more difficult to understand the nuance of a private offering and, and um, when you should give on price in exchange for a certain term and, and so on. And so I do see the case for accredited uh, investing being a, a sort of a, a gating function uh, in a way to protect investors. Um, but of course, uh, ultimately, one, one would argue that um, who, who's protecting the investors in the stock market today, because certainly it's not the SEC. No, no, I, I don't really think anybody is playing that role. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm sure the Fed thinks they are, right, by keeping prices elevated. But um yeah, that to me, they're just uh, you know, it's it's kind of like throwing another bag of cocaine into the party. Um, Indeed. <laughs> uh, okay, so moving on a little bit, one of the things I do, um, and and it, and to me, it really shines through your, your guys' experience and your and your current work in private markets. It shines through in the way that you look at things, and that's one of the reasons that I really enjoy the the work because at the end of the day, we're looking at companies, whether they're public, whether they're private, right? But they are companies. They put out cash streams, and we can try to tell ourselves that investing's all this and blah blah. But but at the end of the day, that's what it is, and it will right. It'll deviate from that at times, like we've seen certainly over the last uh, majority of this cycle, certainly in the last two years. Um, but it's always going to you know have that gravitational pull, like Buffett says. You know, it's it's a weighing machine in the long term, and everything eventually will get weighed, hopefully. Um, but, but through that unique lens that you guys look at stuff, what would you say, I would love to know kind of the top two things, um, in, in finance or economics that you guys are focused on right now. And maybe, maybe you will point to a piece that you've done recently. Um, what, what are, what are kind of those top two things that have really captured your guys's 
imagination and, 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 and attention. And, um, and maybe they're, you know, things that you think are, you know, that, that, that the general populace out there is missing, that the market is missing. What, 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 are the, what, what would you say those top two things are right now that you guys are focused on? Well, one by a long shot um, is uh, it's sort of this one dominant topic that we write about probably every other piece, which is energy. And then there's probably seven or eight things tied for second. And so I'll just focus on energy if that's all right, because that's truly no, where, my next question. Yeah. Yeah, where, <laughs> where, where we have the, the most core competency, having spent decades in, in the industry and understanding how these, these things work. And at its core, um, one of the key messages and themes of the Doomberg writing is energy is life. And uh, the human endeavor is a constant, unrelenting struggle against entropy. Um, we need a certain and consistent amount of energy to not only maintain life and satisfy the base of uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but ultimately your standard of living from a physics perspective is, is nothing more than a manifestation of the amount of energy that you can harness to impose order on your local environment. And, you know, there's a billion people on the world for whom that base level of, of, of needs is not yet met. And then there's this small, you know, um, fraction of a percent of people in the Western world that have uh, huge amounts of money and are setting policy for everybody else. And um, one of the themes of our work is that um, energy is life. And when you tinker with energy, you're tinkering with life. And ultimately, um, the Western energy policy vis-a-vis -vis oil, gas, nuclear, uh, and renewables is completely bonkers and ultimately is going to manifest itself, we believe, in substantial inflation, social disruption, and um, just sort of broad disorder around the world, and ultimately mass starvation. Uh, we wrote a, a very strident piece in October called Starvation Diet, which laid bare the coming fertilizer crisis that has since uh, rolled out almost precisely as we predicted it would. Uh, that's very simple to see if you have the industrial knowledge of knowing that natural gas feeds fertilizer. And when China, you know, um, China stops the export of phosphates, uh, that's not going to go over very well when it comes time for spring planting season in the U.S. And, and we were at a conference of, of some pretty uh, large agricultural companies um, a little over a week ago, and everybody, the talk of the conference was the price of fertilizer and would they plant soybeans versus corn versus beans and would they spread manure and maybe use less fertilizer and, and accept a lower yield just because the cost is so prohibitive. Um, we, we don't see a scenario where our stupid energy policies don't manifest themselves in shortages, higher prices, social disruption, and um, and ultimately war. Um, you know, uh, energy is life, and if you tinker with energy, you tinker with life. And and on the path from abundance to starvation is riot. People will riot before they starve, um, and and we're seeing that. Um, whether nobody would have told us at the beginning of the year that Kazakhstan would have an internal revolt or frankly that Canada would. And I think what we're seeing with the Canadian truckers is, is indirectly not really about vaccines and, and mandates. It's about frustration with the way the entire economy is, is being run by these elite. And, um, and the people who pay the price, of course, are the ones who uh, can least afford to. Yeah, I, I was actually really looking forward because there's, a, there's kind of a, um, a dive down the, the whole on the energy discussion that I wanted to have with you specifically, because you are not, and I, I, you know, we've never met in person, so I'm just judging this from the writing. But you are not some guy walking around <laughs> with a, 
you know, with a fracking drill that wants to drill holes in every single piece of land you see. You're, you're, you're not one of these burn down the environment guys. You're, 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 you're what I would consider, at least from gleaning this from your writing, I, I would consider you a pretty environmentally conscious guy. W- w- would you say that's accurate? Yeah. Look, we, we put a piece out called America's Energy Strategy is Bonkers. And we laid bare what our policy would be. Um, so first of all, obviously, we're the first to say that um, big corporations can't be trusted to act without regulation. Um, we put a scathing piece out called um, In Praise of Corn Ethanol, which laid bare the ugly pollution history of leaded gasoline and the conspiracy to cover that up between General Motors, DuPont, and today's ExxonMobil. Um, but our policy is, is very simple. We should be proactively expanding nuclear energy at every opportunity. We should be replacing dirty coal with clean burning natural gas. We should be replacing internal combustion engines with hybrid electric vehicles uh, on the path to fully electric vehicles once the battery technology makes that more sensible than it is today. Um, we, we just think that you should begin all of these analysis with a human first mindset. Uh, the path function of the energy transition really matters. And there's paths that lead to many dead people through starvation. And there are paths that lead to a, a sensible, gradual transition off of dirty fuels onto cleaner fuels, that better is better, and um, that we shouldn't uh, let perfect be the enemy of the good. Um, that we, we would like to create and spread as much abundance as equity, equitably as possible around the world while doing the minimum damage to the planet. Um, and the, the, the fantasy that we could pivot away from our current energy inputs to 100% renewable by, by 2030 is not only foolish, it's not only like literally violating the laws of physics, it, it involves, by, by necessity, hundreds of millions of starving people, uh, and we object to that. And we think that the path function matters, that you can do, uh, uh, you can make substantial progress on reorganizing the economy, um, optimized for the minimal amount of CO2 emissions um, that you need, but you cannot forget that the intent of the economy is to increase the standard of living of all humans, uh, and that is far too often lost in the debate uh, and the, the analysis by politicians who have no idea what they're talking about. The, 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 what's currently – the situation you just described in the energy market it, to me smacks a lot of uh, – in a lot of ways, you know, the debates surrounding COVID uh, in the sense that, you know, you step back and, and, and get that 30,000-foot view and – you're like, look, I, I don't agree with, at least from my perspective, I don't really agree with the polar opinions. I think there's a common sense approach, and it seems like we're sprinting away from it as fast as possible. And the reason why I want to have this discussion with you is, and I've had this discussion a couple times, but I had this uh, a discussion the other day with a potential client, a uh, very sharp guy. Uh, I would call him very much a moderate politically. Uh, but he is very passionate about the environment. And we were talking about his portfolio, and I was saying, you know, he wants more of an ESG bend to it. And I said to him, I go, um, you know, what does that mean? How much? You know, can we have natural gas? What do you... And his answer was kind of startling to me. No, no fossil fuels whatsoever. I'm anti-fossil fuel. And, and a good guy, good, sharp guy, not an extreme politically at all. And I was shocked by that answer and the thing that shocks me about this is that, A, if you get off of it, where do we go, right? There is no there there. Second of all, like you said, the secondary effects are enormous. 
I, I don't, hopefully you can bring some understanding to this because I, I, when, when I'm looking at the scenario and digging through it, I go, hey, guys, you're going to get a rational energy policy one way or the other. Okay, you're either going to see that you're speeding toward a brick wall or price is going to dictate it, right? It's, you're going to go one way or the other, kicking or screaming. Where is this disconnect? I, I, and I mean, that, that is an earnest question because yeah. it is so simple to me from my perspective where, oh, we want to save the environment. And I go, do you realize how many million you brought, how many millions of deaths your energy policy is going to be responsible for? Where is the disconnect? So the disconnect is, we believe, um, the, our policymakers and the propagandists um, don't really understand where stuff comes from. And they don't understand physics. And, and one of the things that we, one of our catchphrases that we've tried to popularize is um, in the battle between platitudes and physics, physics is undefeated. Um, you can say that you're against fossil fuels, uh, but 85% of the current energy bounty that humans are enjoying is derived from fossil fuels. And by the way, um, if you just forget about money and think about energy as money, to create a uh, wind turbine or to create a solar panel uh, requires way more energy than those, um, those devices can produce in a given year. So there's a payback period. There's an energy payback period. And all this talk about you know, replacing the entire U.S. electricity supply with renewables by 2030 um, literally is physically impossible. And so what we're going to see is you, you're going to have a deep, this defund movement um, is, is going to ultimately be the, the source of a rising unpopularity of renewable energy, which is actually the point that we try to make to these types of environmentalists. Um, the, the, the path function matters, and one of the paths involves riots and people deciding that um, the thing that got us into this is the thing we shall no longer have. Um, and by the way, like it, it's, it's very clear and, and easy to see. And in fact, a lot of this uh, comes from, and, and this might annoy some people in the environmental movement side, but um, we've said it before, it's, there's a very small but highly influential subset of the radical environmentalist movement that are stridently anti-human. They believe that, that all human impact on nature is toxic and that humans are the cancer to the planet and that there is no trade-off. There is no optimization. In other words, their entire objective is to minimize the human impact on the planet, regardless of the consequences to humans. And our response to that is twofold. One, you first. You know, if you don't want to be on the planet and you don't want to damage the planet, go ahead and leave it. Um, the second is go ahead and put that out for vote. Like, let's shine a light on the fact that this is actually what you believe. And, and you know, there are many environmentalists listening who would get angry at that and say that they're not representative. They may not be representative, but they're highly influential. And the defund movement is literally a form of national kamikaze. Um, and I could tell you that the Russians and the Chinese aren't messing around with this kind of nonsense. They're busy um, uh, creating their own energy infrastructure, trading energy back and forth in currencies outside of the U.S. dollar, stacking gold, raising interest rates to flight inflation, and uh, keeping, uh, you know, keeping a good, a, a good close eye on, on, in Russia in particular on, on their um, you know, deficits. Uh, they're, they're sort of acting in the, the Austrian school of economics because they understand that 
the things we're doing are just totally unsustainable. And in fact, we rewrote a piece. Um, we wrote a piece just the other day uh, about oil, and it was called um, "Shooting Oil in a Barrel," where we basically made the point that there's very little differentiation between our current energy strategy and what we'd be doing if a foreign adversary were in control of it. Um, it's it's literally. I mean, it's hard to say that. It's hard to write it, but it's true. I, I, yeah. And we're putting out another piece uh, early next week, hopefully on Monday, um, called Contortion Nation, where you can't make it up how stupid we are about it. And and we, we just think out of this like infinite well of arrogance that we can be stupid on something as critical as energy when our adversaries are not being stupid. And somehow this is never going to come back to bite us. It just baffles us. So uh, we, luckily for us, it gives us, we're so stupid so often it gives us a endless amount of great material to write about. Uh, so at least that's the flip side for us. We have an outlet for our frustration and people seem to enjoy reading it. Yeah, well, I'm one of them. It is, it is, it is shocking because like you said, and I think you frame it correctly, it's almost a human rights issue, right? Um, in, in terms of the energy policies they're pursuing. And what, what, you know, we've talked about it on the show many times and, and, I'll, and I said it earlier, hey guys, you're gonna get there one way or the other. Right. Mm-hmm. It's either going to be with a lot of dead people and uh, riots. Potential riots and overthrows of governments, or you're going to make sensible decisions. And the other thing I've said that you, that you just said, and I, and I haven't heard you say this before, so I, I'm, not, I'm not you know, just saying that now, but you, you said that perfection is the enemy of progress. And, and you, that's the thing that bakes my brain the, the most on this topic is I look at these, especially the folks on the more radical end of it, and I go, if your goal is to decarbonize as fast as you can, right, here's the path. And they're like, no, 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 that's, no good. that's not good enough. No, yeah. we don't want natural gas. No, we, and you're sitting there going, okay, but I thought you told me that mm-hmm. the, 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 the imperative, right, the goal was to decarbonize as quick as possible. They go, yeah, that's right. And I go, okay, but you just said no to this. And they go, yeah, we don't, we don't want to do fossil fuels. I, it's, it, it's just staggering to me. Like, if we go down their path, it's going to be a complete disaster. And, mm-hmm. and, I, I, and I don't know how much work you guys have done this. I, I, I thought I saw a piece on this. But do, I don't, the other thing, too, is I don't think uh, maybe if people have been listening to this show, they do. But I don't think people really have an understanding of exactly how tight things are out there in the energy markets. Um, can you speak to that? Have you guys done work on this? Oh yeah, we we wrote a piece called uh, "Oil to Three Hundred Dollars." I'm That's just scrolling right, yes. to, scrolling down and say we wrote that all the way back in uh, June, I think it was, um, and uh, it, it's it's very clear. Actually, we wrote it on June second. Um, oil to three hundred dollars. If if you price oil in gold, oil is still very cheap uh, compared to the all time high back um, just prior to the financial crisis. Um, yeah, the price elasticity demand for oil and for gas and for electricity. What does that represent? Well, in reality, the price elasticity of demand for energy is the price elasticity of demand for life. And who can afford to pay it? And in reality, um, since energy is life, and when you tinker with energy, you tinker with life, um, rich people can afford to pay it, which is only going to drive a true visceral um, you know, um, uh, inequality uh, of the thing that matters most. It's not even inequality of money, it's inequality of life. And that's why I say, I mean, it's a very quick path from shortage of food to the guillotine. And th- there's a reason why governments throughout history have always kept a keen eye on food inflation in particular 
and um, price elasticity demand for life is infinite for those who can afford it. And uh, there is a clearing price for life and uh, people who can't afford to pay it ultimately, you know, um, have are left with very few choices. And so the exact way in which this sort of complex nonlinear system is perturbated and results in, you know, specific things like the Kazakhstan uprising or the, the Canadian truckers up, up north um, are interesting in hindsight, but, you know, broadly predictable a priori, which is what we've been warning about for, for months and months. And look, there's, we try hard. I mean, it's called Doomberg. So nobody comes to us for, you know, the, uh, the shining light of optimism uh, just over the horizon. But at the same time, we're, we, we are truly optimistic people. We, we hope that by doing our part to highlight the fallacy and the silliness of our, of our, of our policy, the weakness of our policy. And frankly, when we write our geopolitical pieces in particular, um, we're doing it out of a sense of patriotism. We, we, we don't like that the U.S. is essentially a fool on the global stage and, and is corrupted and is having circles run around it by our geopolitical enemies. This is not something that any patriot should, should uh, be happy with. And, and by highlighting it in ways that are accessible, that call on our experience, we hope at least you know, in our own way, do, we're doing our, our small part to try to make things better. Now, I, and I, I, certainly, I certainly think you are. Um, when you get into the when you get into the, um, the the supply side of it, getting kind of down more into the technical aspects of it, you guys have spent a lot of time in the energy markets. Um, how reluctant are these energy companies, in your estimation? How, how reluctant are they to drill? Um, so there's a couple of phenomenon going on. Um, there, of course, was years of overinvestment in the shale patch and much destruction of shareholder capital. And um, many of the companies that are drilling now are, you know, freshly emerged from the bankruptcy that was provoked by the price collapse of oil as a response to the economic shutdowns due to our response to COVID-19. And so that is a, uh, that's a real challenge. Um, and so what we're seeing now is those companies are being run for cash. And by the way, they don't really have much choice in the matter because as the piece we're, point, we're putting out on Monday and the piece we wrote um, earlier uh, last week about oil. Um, the real issue is you can't get anything done in the U.S. anymore. Um, every permit is fought in court by these teams of lawyers that are paid for by the environmentalists. One wonders who the ultimate funders of those organizations are or who is running the propaganda campaigns that, um, that uh, motivate Americans to fund these institutions. But you literally, you know, the piece we're putting it on Monday is, is on the Mountain Valley Pipeline which is 96% complete, has been in construction for for more than five years, um, has had their permits revoked and restored and revoked and restored over and over again. There's absolutely no certainty in capital. Literally, it's, I think, three and a half miles of pipeline left to connect Appalachia and the energy abundance there to the rest of the U.S. national um, natural gas pipeline grid. Um, and, and at the same time, we see uh, Biden calling up to Qatar because he wants to redirect some LNG ships to Europe to, so that they could begin to uh, buffer the Europeans from any potential actions that Putin might take in the Ukraine. When right here in our own home, you know, in our uh, flyover country, in, in, in sort of the, um, the union belt of the United States, we have all of this abundance of energy and we have literally an inability to pull it out of Appalachia because three and a half miles of pipeline stand incomplete and a federal court with um, three judges, one appointed by Clinton during a uh, recess appointment that was controversial and, and two appointed by Obama, um, have turned away yet again 
the federally approved permits of the joint venture of natural gas producers that want to complete and operate this pipeline. And so we have to make the sacrifices in the geopolitical world to help our friends in Europe um, while we are stunting and, and really destroying our capacity to invest here. And it's just really, it's frustrating, it's angering, it's, it is what it is. But as you say, ultimately, we are barreling towards that brick wall at 60 miles an hour. And um, when we hit it, um, there'll be plenty of blamestorming going on where people try to figure out whose fault it was. Okay, this is a new angle that I, that I, I got to confess, somehow I've missed that. I didn't realize that a lot, there's a, I didn't realize that there's been a bunch of legal action blocking drilling permits. Oh, all, the, all over. How is this? All over. In fact, that was the, the point of the piece shooting oil in a barrel. Um, you know, you literally just can't. So um, in that piece, we, we covered the news that um, one single federal judge, again, you know, appointed by Obama, revoked entire swaths of already auctioned oil and gas leases in the Gulf of Mexico, some 80 million acres worth. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, the, the firm, the environmental group behind the push, one of them, of course, there's many of them, is called Earth Justice. And uh, on their homepage, they boast of deploying 170 lawyers against 630 plus active legal proceedings. That's the mother of all legal fee generators, of course. Um, the, uh, the homepage is filled with gorgeous pictures of animals running in water and lots of greenery. Um, and in their policy page, um, their, their main policy page, it's titled Power Everything with 100% Clean Energy. There's zero mentions of the word nuclear, of course which is by definition makes them either anti, anti-human or um, deniers of physics. And they, they just keep, um, there's an entire cottage industry of professional lawyers um, seeking rents uh, f- for the delay and the uh, total destruction of the U.S. energy infrastructure. And in fact, in that piece we talk about, uh, and we point out research from others as well, our good friend Josh Young at, at Bison's Interest, um, there's this phenomenon that's occurring right now in the U.S., which is um, in the shale patch, there are actually two steps to, to, to get oil out of the ground. First, you drill the well, and then you complete it. Right. And they're separate teams, they're separate processes. And in fact, you can think of drilled but uncompleted wells, ducks, um, as they're called. Um, those are sort of the working capital of easy-to-access um, oil that the industry is currently um, decapitalizing at a, at a at a staggering pace. And so uh, what we're seeing is the industry is not really drilling new wells at a level that would be consistent with the ability to sustain the current oil production, uh, but instead is just uh, completing all the previously drilled wells um, and extracting all the cash and um, not really reinvesting. And we're, and right now the U.S. is is producing about 11.7 million barrels per day down from 13 million barrels a day plus pre-COVID. Um, we don't know what the path is from here to there that can even maintain 11.7, let alone grow it back to, um, to, to pre-COVID levels. And then you mix in what we believe, and many others as well believe, is that OPEC you know, and OPEC plus does not have the spare capacity that everybody thinks they do. Um, we're we're going to see, you know, because of this inability to, to drill, which is driven in large part by the Biden administration and their allies um, trying to discourage it, you know, capital goes where capital is treated well and, and capital is not being treated well in the U.S. What company would be willing to start a five-year process to build a critical pipeline out of Appalachia uh, if 
you can be approved by the by the relevant federal agencies multiple times only to get a strip by a single judge in a single court by you know teams of lawyers that are out to basically put you out of business that it that there's better ways and easier ways to make money uh, one of them is to just go be long the commodity in the futures market because price is going up yeah i it, it's it's i'm still <clears throat> i'm still wrapping my trying to wrap my head around this the, the other the other aspect of this that is shocking to me is when you look at how on, uh, well, I mean, this is the problem with any em new emerging technology, right? It, it, essentially, if we get down, efficiency is a problem. They, they, they couldn't use, um, quote, unquote, green energy as it exists today. They, 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 they couldn't power the grid consistently with an, uh, regardless of the amount of money they threw at it, right? It's, it's it, the number. Intermittency. It's intermediate power sources right. versus baseload power, yeah. Right. Um, <clears throat> so there, there does not exist that technology to push it forward, right? Um, and watching, looking at the price, one of the things that is so interesting to us is value investors, right? The, the opportunity that we believe exists in public markets um, in a lot of energy stocks right now is unparalleled, at least on a, you know, <clears throat> on, a, <laughs> on a fundamental basis. One of the things that shocks me, though, is if you're really serious about this, and you're coming at it from the from the you know the green energy side, and you've got this problem because you you, you want to really push green energy. A, a rational mind would sit back and go, okay, I, I know for a fact that we can't fully convert over to green energy. So one of the things I've thought about is I, I'm kind of surprised you haven't seen one of these green energy, you know, plays or somebody start a green energy fund where they bought up some of these fossil fuel assets and let the cash flow fuel the the research on the green energy side. Right, the, your biggest problem is it's uneconomic, so use the economics to to your advantage. And if you're so passionate about it, buy up some of these, you know, these properties, some of these uh, uh, companies or parts of them or whatever, and use the use the cash flow to find. I there's just so many more efficient ways we could be going about well, doing this. Let me reframe this for you in a way that maybe you haven't thought of. Um, it's not actually much in the way of technical challenges to solve this problem. The path exists. It involves a concurrent build-out of nuclear power right. alongside the rollout of renewable energy. Uh, one of the big challenges that we've highlighted is the fact that we've allowed China to basically gain monopoly power over the manufacturing of all of the key inputs that go into renewable power, which is one of the reasons why we think that um, there is no difference between what we're doing and what a foreign adversary would have us do. Because while we are taking the baseball bat to the kneecap of our fossil fuel industry, in demanding that we do more and more wind and solar, all of the key components to make those technologies work are manufactured almost exclusively in China, and they have complete control over whether or not they will sell the, those materials to us and, and at what price. Um, we understand how to make polysilicon efficiently, powered by fossil fuels, ironically, um, and you know th th these solutions exist, but instead what we get is California is moving to close its last remaining nuclear power plant. New England just closed a, a one a few years ago. Um, and uh, we get instead of uh, a solid concurrent build out of nuclear enabled baseload power alongside the deployment of renewables, we get renewables only while we uh, kneecap our fossil fuel industry, which leads to destabilized grids, which leads to rolling blackouts, which leads to New England burning oil to bridge itself through a cold snap. Like you can't make it up. Uh, New England importing LNG from Trinidad and Tobago because they are forbidden by the Jones Act to to take advantage of the LNG export terminals along the East Coast and in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, we are literally led by unserious people. We are an unserious nation. 
and unserious nations tend not to preserve their their place as the global superpower of the world. Like it, it this is going to end. Um, there's only so much nonsense that we can do. Only so much shooting ourselves in the foot until we start to believe, and it's coming. Um, you know, it's it's shameful. It's it's frustrating. Uh, we love the country. We we are doing our best to try to sort of highlight these issues. But we are led by idiots. I mean, there's no other way to say it. Our leaders are idiots um, as it pertains to technology and science and ethics. And, um, you know, you, you sort of the old saying goes is you, you, you have the leaders you deserve. Yeah, I just I, I, I you know, I am not. A, we have a joke around here. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, theorist because conspiracies don't pay well. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm in the business to manage money and, and, and that kind of stuff. And I think people can go down black holes. Having said that, when you, when you, when you're, when you're digging through this and you really start understanding the fundamental drivers and you understand the severity of the situation, it, part of me sits there and, and thinks this can't be on accident. Do do you really think, is this, am I, am I making the classic mistake that conspiracy theorists make, which is. I, these things don't line up, so I have to create something. And, and the simple answer, the Occam's razor approach, is it's just pure stupidity. I, I, Bill Gates is not a – and I'm not saying he's behind this. I don't know. Sure. What, I, I, no. <laughs> but this is going to go down some COVID deal. Yeah, but, yeah. but, you know, these – I don't see these people as stupid, so I'm naturally left to think is this – I, you know what angle I'm going at, right? Sure. Wait, wait, yeah. how, do you, how do you bridge that gap? So first of all, I hate the word conspiracy theory. Um, right. It was born in the aftermath of JFK assassination to um, try to stifle um, domestic questions about what truly happened in that event. And um, it has since been abused to shut, shut down debate mm -hmm. and to limit free speech amongst free thinking people in the U.S. So that having been said, um, I actually think I mean, who amongst your friends that you respect for their talent and their intellect would, would run for public office today? Um, it's a terrible, you know, gauntlet of personal abuse and, you know, inspection into your private life and mud, you know, mudslinging and, and you know, the, 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 these destructive battles over ideas uh, when you destroy people because you don't like their ideas. Nobody smart or talented, uh, I believe, with a good ethical compass uh, would want to do that. And so what you're left with is sort of the still bottoms. Um, anybody who could do anything else is doing it. And you're left with the leaders that we have, honestly. And that's why if you look at the age of our leadership, they're all professional politicians from 30, 40, 50 years ago in their late seventies and eighties. And I do worry that one, you know, not worry. I look forward to the day when that finally turns over and we have a new uh, uh, influx of leaders, because at least we have a chance of getting some reasonable change in, but uh, I would never serve in government. Would you? Oh, you could no. Oh, exactly, no. exactly. Yeah. So, who's left to serve in government? People that either don't have the capability to uh, make a productive life in private industry, or who have uh, an ethical framework that you and I would be uncomfortable with. That see it as a path to uh, ill-gotten gains and, and a ready uh, arena for uh, corruption. Uh, and look, I mean, it, there's a reason why Congress has the the and the, the media that uh, placates them has the the approval ratings that they do. I don't think this is a conspiracy theory. We are led by people. Who um, who seek power for all the wrong reasons, and who have um, such a, a, a paucity of knowledge that is scary. And look, there's only so long that can continue. Like it, we are not a superpower for much longer. No, I I actually have a, a client of mine who uh, who 
is is good friends with um, uh, Steve Largent, former uh, uh, sure you know, Boy, Seattle Seahawks. Yeah, oh, yeah, you you right, man. He's, he's big deal around here. You bet. Uh, my, as a matter of fact, my wife has his jersey. Uh, well, <laughs> so, but but he uh, very good guy. Uh, went and worked, and I am not quoting him. This is hearsay, so do not anybody attribute this directly. But 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 uh, when he was elected, I believe twice to Congress. And then he left. He could have been reelected again and probably could have been senator. They loved him. Um, and I was asking my client, who's, who's friends with him, actually played with him, um, and said, what, you know, what was behind that? And he goes, he said that to, something to the effect of good men cannot stay good men there. That, that it is it, whatever you think, however dirty you think it is. It's worse. It, yeah. it, it exponentially amplify it, right? Yeah. And he goes – Yes, I had a clear path forward. He goes, but I just I would have had to make compromises that I wasn't willing to make, and yeah. um, and then that just and we all know it's dirty. But his 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 he, the assertion was something along the lines of no, no, it's not just dirty. You can't be clean. You, you, know? you can't be clean. And no, it, it, well, that's what you said. You run for political office. I, you know, you're in a scenario right now where I, you couldn't get a good person in office because by the time they get there, right, <laughs> the getting yeah. there. They, they might have entered at Lily White. You know, I look at somebody like Tulsi Gabbard. Like, look how she got just ripped apart, right? Yeah. There's things I don't agree with her with. But what was refreshing to me was that you could tell she was an honest person that loved the country, right? And I'm just sitting there going, yeah. you know, the, that, that, that uh, litmus test for me as far as politicians go, it's getting it, – that bar is being lowered drastically uh, by the day. But you're right. I, I, we, we are stuck. We have the leadership that we deserve. And what – I, you know, one of the bright spots in it, and again, you're not... You, yeah, let's, do, let's do, pivot to something happy here. <laughs> well, do, well, the Doomberg guys, right? You're, you're <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The, the interesting thing is, is you've got the millennial generation coming up, and one of the things I'm hoping for is that in their formative years, they see this blow up, right? They see the outcome. They see the carnage. They see the cost and the pain. Um, and, and I'm really hoping, right? It's, you know, I... I I don't know if I've heard you speak to this and I'm forgetting who says it, but that when you're a money manager and, and I'm not saying that they're all going to be money managers, obviously, but when you're a money manager, your outlook on the investment world is really, is usually shaped by your first two to three years in it. Right. Yeah. Um, I'm really hoping, I'm hoping there's a ray of light there because you and I both know that to me, this is an eventuality. If you pursue this path down the right, it is going to explode in your face. Like you said, it's the laws of physics. It's called gravity. If you drop it, it's going to hit the floor. Um, I'm kind of holding out hope, though, that watching this head-on collision up close will sway some of them, right? Will wake some of them up. What do you think the chances of that are? Am I being too optimistic? No, I mean, it, it's – well, I wouldn't say it's optimistic that the um, right the, the best path forward that we have is a, is a deep enough crash that people, you know um, – come to their senses. Um, but I, I do think, like you say, we are shaped by our experiences. And I think it's Grant Williams. Yes. At least the first I heard it yes. was from, from Grant Williams, That's who right. drew that connection that your investment style is dictated by what happened in the first two years that you entered the market or entered the industry. And so, you know, if you grew up during the crash of equities in Japan, then that has sort of always shaped you. Whereas if you grew up in the in the dot-com bubble, it's a whole different story. But I, st I um, started managing money at the end of 2007. Yeah, so great timing for you. No wonder you're a value investor, right? Um, so no, I, 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 I do think that ultimately, as you say, the path function matters. Um, we're on this path now. You know, um, ninety dollar plus oil, 
um, inflation running hot, the Fed trapped, um, interest rates have to come up, the valuations of these, uh, what, what your friend Cuppy would call the Ponzi bubble are epically out of control. Um, you know, as we sit here, like Dogecoin still has a 16 or $17 billion market cap. If you can think of like it, it's, it's baffling, you know, because that, that, um, you know, that, 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 that mania has come and gone, but in reality, um, it's still is sporting like this huge market cap. I'm just pulling it up as we're talking, you know, it's, yeah, it's I mean, 16 billion used to be real money, man. Yeah. I remember when a billion was the real, so the market is, is, is $19 billion as I sit here. There are so many quality companies throwing off cash that you could buy for $19 billion. And yet Dogecoin, which is a joke currency uh, of a cryptocurrency, sort of a Ponzi within a Ponzi, it, it, it sports a $19 billion market cap and people are trading it back and forth. You know, it's... Uh, I know, man. You think of the... You, I, I mean, you could probably buy half my book for $19 billion. And yeah. you'd be collecting probably on average between six to seven billion in cash a year. I, it's yeah. just, that that's the part of this that is just mind blowing because it, you know, and 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 I'm a believer uh, that markets eventually do make sense, and I, I I see this as just the rubber band stretching to the ultimate amount. And and you know, I kind of came to that realization after COVID, where everybody's how like how long is this going to last? And, mm-hmm. and I kind of adopted this position of. Um, guys, this thing is going to the limit, right? They, they are going to, this thing, I, in my opinion, is going to stretch to the bounds of just absolute insanity. And that's kind of where I'm sitting there going, I think we're really close just because it just doesn't make any sense. Now I want to, I want to pivot really quickly because I'm, I'm very fascinated by what you're doing with Grant Williams. We didn't really discuss that particular, let, let me, let me know and the listeners know um, and I, I wanted to discuss this before we before we end here. But sure. Let, yeah, let us know what that's going to look like, and when when does the first episode come out? And kind of give us uh, the give us the rundown. So the first episode published this week. Um, I believe it came out on on Wednesday. Um, so we've created a new podcast under the Grant Williams brand. So it should be clear that um, Grant Williams is a fantastic content creator and friend of your show and, and close friend of ours. And he publishes his podcast, his newsletter, and this outstanding series of. Uh, of videos under his gold tier over at grant-williams.com and a good friend of ours always happen to plug him and um he he and, and the Doomberg team have launched a new podcast together under his brand under the grant williams podcast brand called this week in doom <laughs> and um grant and and i are the co-hosts of that podcast and it is behind grant's paywall so you have to subscribe to grant williams to do it um, and it is a separate product from the Doomberg you know, Substack, which will eventually have its own sort of uh, subscription, hopefully down the road, if we earn that right and grow big enough. And uh, our intent with that podcast is to, you know, one of the things we've written about that Grant agrees with is that there's this gig economy for brains that's evolving and, and has been accelerated by COVID and the the decentralization of the manner in which people consume entertainment and the the manner in which they educate themselves is is going through this revolution. And Doomberg is, is our our attempt to participate in that transformation and um, that the gig economy for brains is, is the fact that if you're smart enough and, and read enough and, and have enough talent to produce content that people either are entertained by or, or educated by, you can make a living doing that. And that's what we, we certainly intend to do with the Doomberg brand. Uh, We'd love nothing more than to put our um, advisory business on runoff as we focus on Doomberg. Hopefully our clients aren't listening. Don't tell them. Um, (laughs) And we love our clients, but we love Doomberg more. You know how it goes. And um, 
And so with, with the This Week in Doom podcast, uh, again, co-hosted by Grant Williams, our intent is to go and find under-the-radar content creators and, and lend them the Grant Williams platform to uh, sort of make the case for their, for their content and, and to have Grant subscribers, um, you know, um, learn a little bit from these innovative creators and, and get a sense for what's out there on offer and, and to maybe give uh, content creators a boost um, because uh, Grant, like us, does believe in this, uh, this giving strategy, this philosophy of, of helping others that the rising tide raises all boats and that the, uh, the growth of, of the demand for content, for good high quality content far exceeds any of our abilities to uh, monopolize enough of it such that we'd be, we'd be viewed as competitors. And so um, we, we certainly act that way, believe that way, support the work of others, uh, highlight them in our pieces, retweet them on Twitter. And this is the ultimate manifestation of that where Grant and, and the Doomberg team are going to um, give, a, give a nice platform for people that are perhaps underfollowed relative to the quality of their work. And then and hopefully, you know, we could give people that boost and, and, and create lifelong friends and, and mutual reciprocity uh, as we all go about trying to, uh, to create a living out of this content world. Yeah, no, and and, and uh, it's funny. I've had people ask me, you have other podcast hosts on and talk about their podcast? And I go, absolutely. And they go, why? And I go, this is about, this is about cooperation. It's about, we, yes. I, I know that all of us that do this in our own way, part of how we came here organically was a frustration with the way information is disseminated and the filters in which that we're being fed it, right? Um, and at least that, I mean, I, I can't speak for you, but, but you know, everybody else that, 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 has, that does this in any capacity, we, we seem to share that. Um, and it is that cooperative effect. You know, you, you see somebody else putting out good content and you want to, you know, yeah. you're right. It does lift all boats. And I, I, I also think there's a practical aspect of it. I mean, it, it's teaching people to look elsewhere, right? It's, 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 it, I think the more of us, the more downloads you guys have, I think it's better for podcasts in general, right? Um, yeah. And, and I, I just see it as very cooperative. And, and, and I, the other thing I'd like to say is that I, I am a subscriber to Grant Williams podcast. And when you guys go into the paywall, I will probably be one of the first to jump in there as well. And I can't, I can't strongly recommend it enough. Um, again, guys, just for that alternative perspective, right? You're getting fed bubble vision as we call it. All the time, everywhere you go, everything is gamified, you know, like we were talking about. It's the gamification. It's, you know, um, if you want real contact, content or, or, you know, real analysis, deep dives, real understanding. That's the other thing I love about you and Grant's work both, and I hope we do the same, is it's not just talking about a topic. It's explaining, right? It's yeah. teaching. It's, un, it's trying to unfold something in a way that people get it, right? Yeah, and, and look at love nothing more than for uh, as many of your listeners as possible to head over to doomberg.substack.com yeah. and sign up. It's free today. Um, this is truly the work of our lives. Um, we love doing it. We publish probably twice a week. Um, and, and look, if we don't earn your business, then that's on us, but we certainly would love the chance to. Yeah. Well, and, and you guys, uh, you know, you have a platform. If, if you want to get the word out, obviously I hope you, both you and Grant know that if we can help in any way, get the word out and, and same to you assist in the process. We're, we're all about it, man. So awesome. Uh, anyway, great. Finally getting you on. And I, I, again, I can't strongly recommend getting on there again. It's doomberg.substack.com guys. It's also entertaining. They're good reads. I really think that you guys do a really good job of merging you know, some really, uh, you know, fairly highbrow information and, and, and deep analysis, but also make it entertaining, you know. Um, yeah. So I, I, I really appreciate that. Love the opportunity to be on your show, Zach, and um, a longtime listener uh, of Know Your Risk. And, and 
very happy to come back on anytime you'd like to have us. All right, pal. And same to you. Um, and uh, and let Grant, let your buddy Grant know I said hello and tell him I will be hounding him. Uh, he and I are working on setting up a date as we speak. So Wonderful. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so thank you so much for coming on, guys. You can follow them again. It's at Doomberg on Twitter, right? At Doomberg T. Somebody is squatting on Doomberg, so okay. you have to add a, add a T at the end of it. But uh, Doomberg Twitter, uh, at Doomberg T, and, and, of course, on the Substack. Yeah, Doomberg.substack.com. All right, you guys, that's all we have time for today or for today. Thank you so much for joining us. And keep an eye, guys, out on Deep Dives. I mentioned we're working on putting something together with Grant. We've got several other names coming up in the hopper over the next month or two, and you're not going to want to miss it. As always, download and subscribe to Know Your Risk Radio podcast at knowyourriskradio.com. We'll see you next week. Opinions expressed in this program are for general information purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or any specific security. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. Any indices referenced for comparison are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. Bulwark Capital Management is an investment advisor representative of of Clear Creek Financial Management, a registered investment advisor.